So my name's Ralph Ellis, and my talk today is uh, Climate, Energy, Misinformation and Dis... Disinformation, because I think this subject is being very badly taught to the public. So what does Ralph Ellis know about uh, climate? Well, this is my uh, latest peer-reviewed climate paper, uh, Modulation of Ice Ages via Procession and Dust Albedo Feedbacks. Uh, very successful, 45,000 downloads, um, and fairly controversial because it says that CO2 is not the major feedback agent controlling temperature. Um, but we're not going to look at this apart from just one of the diagrams from this paper. Uh, and this is temperature versus CO2 during the ice ages. And you've got 800,000 years of uh, data here. Temperature versus CO2 with all of the major ice ages from, well, nearly the last million years. And you can see that temperature and CO2 are in lockstep together. And some scientists have to uh, assumed from that that CO2 is controlling temperature. But of course, you could say, sorry, correlation does not imply causation. You need some evidence for causation. Alternatively, you can look at this graph and you can say that every time CO2 is high, the world cools. And every time CO2 is low, the world warms. So you could say, that high CO2 causes cooling and low CO2 causes warming. Now it's more complex than that, but you can probably see from this that there are other factors involved in temperature control on the planet. Because this would not happen if CO2 was a very strong feedback agent. So moving along, how did this all start, all of this uh, climate caper? Uh, well, it started with this graph, you're probably familiar, the uh, hockey stick graph. Uh, this is a thousand years of temperature derived from tree rings. And tree rings are not a very good proxy uh, for temperature, but never mind. Um, so how was this created? Well, we can probably see that from the climate gate emails. This is an email to uh, Ray Bradley, uh, Michael Mann, and uh, Keith Briffer, these are all climate scientists. And uh, what does it say? It says, I've just completed Mike's nature trick. Oh, let's go back. So it says, I've just completed Mike's nature trick. Now Mike is Professor Michael Mann, and Nature is the uh, scientific journal Nature. I've just completed Mike's nature trick of adding in the real temperatures to each series for the last 20 years, from 1981 onwards and from 1961 for Keith Briffers in order to hide the decline. So what was the trick and what was the decline that they were hiding? Well, you can see that on Keith Briffers' data. So this uh, was the tree ring data again from Keith Briffer. So this is 600 years of data. And you can see the temperature bubbles along for uh, 550 years until we get to the mid 20th century. And then the temperature declines. 
the temperature goes down in the 20th century. Now, the divergence problem says that tree rings record temperature exactly for hundreds of years until 1950, and then they don't. <laughs> and if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Um, so what do you do if you have this decline? This is the decline that they were trying to hide, um, the divergence problem. So what do you do if you have a decline? Easy, you chop off the end of the graph and you stitch in the temperature, the thermometer data, and lo and behold, you've got a hockey stick graph. Um, so that is how the hockey stick graph was formed. That's why you see on the modern versions of it, you see a different uh, colour at the end of it, because it is two data sets that have been stitched together. Um, so climate science started with disinformation. I call that disinformation. Um, and the disinformation has continued ever since. You're probably all familiar with this one. This is the BBC, of course. Who else? The BBC. Um, BBC weather maps. Um, so why the difference? Well, the one on the left side is from 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, I think. The one on the right is a modern one. Now, the BBC came out and said the one on the right is to aid uh, people with visual impairment. <laughs> Now, who thinks the one on the right-hand side is easier and clearer than the one on the left? No, this was part of the agenda, and this agenda has been all over in the media. So, USA tornado numbers, I'm going to go just rapidly through a few of these. Uh, what's happening to US tornadoes? Well, we all know they're getting worse, they're getting stronger, there's getting more of them. Um, well, let's look at the data. The data here comes from the NOAA Storm Prediction Center, which is the go-to site for information on um, storms in the US. And this is giving uh, 70 years of data. And as you can see, the strong tornadoes have been reducing for 70 years. And if you did not know that, why did you not know that? And where is the climate emergency in that data? The weather's getting better not getting worse. The same happens if we look at hurricanes and typhoons. Um, so what's happening to those? Well, we all know they're getting worse, they're getting stronger. Uh, cities are being wiped out left, right and centre. Let's look at the data, and the data comes from Dr. Ryan Mao. Uh, cyclone frequency, and this is over 40 years from satellite data. Uh, so if we look on the upper part of this graph, all cyclones have been decreasing for 40 years, according to the satellite data. And the strong tornadoes, uh, not tornadoes, these are tropical cyclones, this is hurricanes and typhoons. Uh, the strong ones have been steady, no change. No change in 40 years. Uh, again, it's not exactly what we're being told by the media. Um, what do we have next? We have uh, polar sea ice. Well, we all know the problem with sea ice it's melting, the sea levels are going to rise, we're all going to drown. Um, this is 40 years, again, of satellite data from the NSIDC, that's the National Snow and Ice Data Center in America, the go-to site for information on polar regions. And as you can see, the blue is the Arctic, and Arctic sea ice has been decreasing for 40 years. It's decreased by 20%. Uh, 
you might say that's a problem. Uh, but Antarctic sea ice has been increasing for 35 years, up until 2017 when there was a large storm down in the South Atlantic and it broke up the ice, but it's been recovering ever since. Um, so where is the alarmism in that data and why the disparity between north and south? CO2 is a global gas, it should have global effects. Uh, so why do we get a difference between north and south? Uh, well, we don't actually know, nobody knows, but just as an example of the differences, uh, this is the Arctic, this is Greenland, and it's not quite as pristine as you might expect. Uh, this is Chinese industrial dust on Greenland. And so we can see that not all climatic effects are CO2. There are other factors involved in temperature and climate. And, well, we can't finish without looking at polar bears, can we? Canary in the coal mine for the uh, climate industry. Here's a quote from the BBC. Polar bears will be wiped out. Why the alarmist language, wiped out? Why not reduced by a little bit? Anyway, wiped out by the end of the century unless more is done to tackle climate change, a study predicts. BBC, only from three years ago. This is pure disinformation because the BBC must have known about the graph of polar bear numbers. Uh, and this comes from Dr. Susan Crockford, who's been studying polar bears for like 35 years. And as you can see, Polar bear numbers have been increasing for 60 years. Not only increasing, they've quadrupled over 60 years. Where is the wiped out in that data? This is why the BBC is giving disinformation. Um, that's why the BBC is effectively the most unreliable uh, news organisation uh, known to man. But if you mention this in polite society, they will say 97% of scientists agree with anthropogenic global warming. No, they don't. Where did this come from? This came from this paper by John Cook et al, 2013. Uh, what did they do? They took 12,000 climate papers, of which 66% expressed no opinions, so they threw those out of the window. Um, of the remainder, 3% rejected global warming completely. Ergo, you might say, 97% of papers with an opinion um, supported global warming. It sounds like a cat food advert, doesn't it? Um, for those of you old enough to remember that one. Um, but that's not what the paper said. If you dig deeper into this paper, it said 24% uh, of papers supported global warming, only 24%. Now, myself, as a CO2 skeptic, I would be a 24%er, because there has been some warming, we don't quite know what is causing it, we don't quite know the magnitude. Nevertheless, there has been some warming, so I would be a 24%er. However, digging deeper into this paper, only 8% implicitly endorsed anthropogenic global warming, that it's all our fault and only half a percent of papers explicitly supported the IPCC version 
of anthropogenic global warming. So it was not 97%, it was half a percent. <laughs> That's the true figure. That's the true figure. And the problem here is that all climate scientists are paid to agree with anthropogenic global warming. He who pays the piper calls the tune. If you don't go along with it, you don't get a grant. I know about this because my paper was rejected by the Royal Society because it did not agree with anthropogenic global warming. So I had to go elsewhere to get it published. Um, and if you don't go along with it, well, a bit like my experience, you end up like these climate scientists who were actually pushed out of their jobs because they disagreed with the agenda. Uh, that's the problem with modern academia. There is no freedom of speech, there's no freedom of research. Um, there is no freedom within modern academia. That is a real problem that needs to be overcome. Now, um, I'll very quickly go through this because the previous video touched on this. Uh, what's the truth about CO2? Well, what's the difference between these plants? Well, CO2, of course. Those on the left had lots of CO2. Those on the right had very little. Um, so the unspoken truth is that CO2 is plant food. And therefore, CO2 is the most essential gas in the atmosphere. Without CO2, all life on Earth will die. Um, so where are we? We're sitting at 400 parts per million. Plants are doing reasonable. But as that little video said, if we have more CO2, um, plants would do better. That's why greenhouse growers pump up the CO2 in their greenhouses to 1,500 parts per million to make their plants grow quicker and stronger. Um, conversely, back in the last ice age, this is only 20,000 years ago, during the last ice age, CO2 came down to 190 parts per million. And as you can see, the plants are not doing very well. And up on the Gobi in uh, north of China, on the Highland Plateau there, um, the equivalent CO2 came down to 150 parts per million, at which point all of the plants died. So, low CO2 equals plant death, which equals CO2 deserts. Now, you're probably familiar with precipitation deserts. If there's not enough water, the plants die, you get a desert. The same happens with CO2. Um, if there's not enough CO2, the plants die and you get a CO2 desert. And that's what happened 20,000 years ago up on the Gobi Plateau. Conversely, during the Jurassic era, CO2 was 2,500 parts per million. That's six times higher than now. Um, and the biosphere was fine. In fact, the large size of dinosaurs was in part due to extra CO2. More CO2 equals bigger plants, equals bigger herbivores, equals bigger carnivores. That was the Jurassic era. So don't let um, any uneducated teenagers tell you that CO2 is bad for the biosphere. It's good for the biosphere. Brings us on to energy policy. That's probably why we're here, because it's affecting energy policy. But I don't think we've got an energy policy. I think we've got an energy fantasy, because I think um, the ministers in Westminster don't know what they're doing. Sorry, Andrew, but you might actually agree with me. Uh, <laughs> um, 
So let's look at UK electrical generation by type, and you'll see that most of it is the yellow, which is gas. And on the uh, left here, we've got purple and blue, which is wind, solar, and bio. And so now we have renewables at 39%. And you might say, hooray, that's wonderful. We're going renewable. Um, well, not quite, because that blue sector on the left, this one here, this is Drax the Destroyer. Uh, Drax used to be our largest coal-fired co uh, power plant, uh, four gigawatts, so it's pretty big. It's now burning trees, and last year it burnt 18 million tonnes of trees, and that figure will go up to 27 million tonnes of trees per year. So you're being told, plant a tree, Drax is burning them. Um, so, is that a good idea? I'll leave that with you. The other problem is that UK fossil fuels is only 1 uh, of the amount being burnt in China for their electricity. Um, so, let's have a look at the Chinese pie chart, just for a bit of contrast. Here it is, and it's mostly black. It's mostly coal. Uh, that's a problem, because if you look down here on the left-hand side, UK is 16 gigawatts of fossil fuels for our electrical generation, and most of that is gas, uh, which is fairly clean. And China is 615 gigawatts, mostly coal, which is pretty dirty. So if we wanted to represent the UK on the right-hand side, that's the UK in comparison with China. So whatever we're doing is a drop in the ocean in comparison with China. The other problem is, is China reducing? Well, no, because last year they built 50 gigawatts of coal. So three times more than the UK has. They were just commissioning those um, coal-fired power stations just last year. Um, so we can destroy our economy in Europe and in the UK, and it will have no difference whatsoever on CO2 emissions if you think CO2 is a problem, which I don't. Um, the other problem is that total energy that we use is much more than electricity. The government seems to be fixated on electricity, but uh, total energy is much larger. So uh, this is the electrical generation uh, pie chart, the one we've just seen. Uh, I want you to have a look at this red, which is oil. Now, if, if we go to total energy, total energy looks like this. Ah, okay, so now oil, is much larger, gas is much larger, and renewables are only 16% of total energy. Why? Because you've got to take into account transport, space heating, and, uh, oh, what's the other one? Industry. Uh, and when you add all of those in, it's four times the amount of energy that we're actually producing by electricity. So the problem is, power generation needs to increase by 400%. Four times. So where are those power stations being built? Whatever they are, whether they're solar, wind, or nuclear, where are they being built? Because as you know, these projects are like 20-year projects. They don't happen overnight. Um, so where do we go from here? Oh yes, we go to backup storage. This is another canary in the coal mine, as it were. Um, we need backup. So this is a chart of electrical generation for December 2021. And as you can see, the blue goes missing. The blue is wind. So the blue, yeah, there we go. We get a six-day wind outage of wind. 
Now, you get much longer. The longest I've seen is a 21-day outage of wind. But we also have no solar. Solar is the yellow. There is no solar in the winter. Don't let tr people try to tell you that you get solar power in the winter in the UK. There is none for the whole of December 2021. None. So we've got a six-day wind outage, and we've got to cover that. How do we cover that? Well, we cover it by gas. That's the purple, is gas. But the government wants to get rid of gas by 2035. If that goes, we're going into the dark, unless we have some sort of backup storage. We need 10 days of backup storage. How much energy is that? Well, easy to calculate. For 10 days to back up half of our grid, not all of it, um, is 4,800 gigawatt hours of energy. Don't worry about the units, just look at the magnitude of it, because that's not the total problem. Um, we've not accounted for transport and space heating and everything else. So total energy, electricity is only 25% of total energy. So we need to multiply by four, giving us 19,000 gigawatts of energy, stored energy, for when the wind and the solar are not working. The trouble is, we've only got 10. So we need 19,000 gigawatt hours, we've only got 10 gigawatt hours. That is a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, what sort of storage do we have? Well, we have Dinorwig, of course, which is a pump storage system. Uh, basically, you pump water up and then let it flow back down again and you generate electricity. Uh, this is Dinorwig, well worth a visit. If you're up in Snowdonia, it's called Electric Mountain. Now, the problem is, even if we could increase Dinorwig to 30 gigawatt hours, we would need 600 Dinorwigs. Where on earth are we going to build 600 Dinorwigs? And how long will that take? Um, the government science advisor, we'll come on to him in a minute, suggested that we flood all of the Welsh valleys. And I don't think they'll be very pleased about that. Um, so how much will this cost us? Uh, Dinorwig, in today's money, was 1.7 billion. So if we multiply that up, total cost of storage, 1,000 billion. A nice round trillion, that's good. And we can confirm that figure by the new one, uh, which is Corey Glass up in Scotland, and that is the upper pond for the storage system in Scotland. They're building right now. And again, if we multiply that up, it comes to a total cost of 950 billion. So that's a fairly good estimate of the costs involved, a huge amount. Um, so the government is not serious about Britain converting to electric generation using renewable energy unless they address the energy storage problem. Now, the government has known about this for a decade or two because they were told about this by Professor McKay, who was the previous uh, government science advisor. And he wrote this uh, little booklet, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. It's available online. Uh, I advise you go and have a read of it. Uh, it's, it's got a few fanciful bits in it, but nevertheless, there's some good information there. And he came out. The trouble is, McKay, he was a greenie but he could not make renewables work for the UK. He was really struggling. So he came out with five plans 
um, for how we could go renewable in the UK. Um, and so these are the five plans and you can see that there are major blocks of power on each one and then lots of little bits down below. So the major blocks are these. These are the costings. For 60%, not all of our power, this is just for 60% of our power. So offshore wind, obviously we can have wind. How much will we need? Um, well, 100 Hornsey 3s. Hornsey 3 is the largest wind farm in the world being built out in the North Sea. Uh, we will need 100 of those at a cost of 850 billion. Um, that's based on a 35% capacity factor. Trouble is, they wear out after 25 years, so you've got to do that all over again. That's another 850 billion. The wind doesn't always blow, so you've got to have a backup system. That's 1,000 billion. Total cost, nice, 2,700 billion. And is that going to get ready by 2035 or 2050? No, it's not. Um, the other one he came, uh, he suggested, was solar in the Sahara. He recognised quite, quite uh, uh, well that solar does not work in the UK. So he said, we'll put the solar panels in the Sahara, where the sun is more reliable. Sounds good, but it's a real fantasy, this one. Um, <clears throat> So how much would that cost? Well, we would need 3,900 Roughton Airfields. Roughton Airfield is the big solar plant just south of Swindon. Um, at a cost of 320 billion, quite a snip, you might say. Um, but of course, they weigh out after 25 years, so you've got to replace them. Then you've got to rent the land, it's not our land, and you've got to rent the land uh, through France and Spain to get the cable back here again. I costed that at 30 billion per year, so that's 1,500 billion over 50 years. And then you've got, to, you've got to build this cable. This is really a problem. Um, now I based this on the Swedlink in, journey, in Germany. The Swedlink goes from northern Germany to southern Germany, and they're having real problems building that cable. But the problem is we need 340 Swedlinks, because it's a lot further to go down to um, the uh, Sahara, um, 3,100 billion. And then you need uh, a storage backup system because the sun doesn't always shine in the Sahara. They have nights there as well. Um, so that's 1,000 billion. So you're talking about 6,240 6, billion. And that's not going to be ready by 2035. None of that is going to be ready. The other one he was looking at it's had a bad rap over the last uh, 40 years or so, is nuclear power. How much would that cost? Well, we've got a good example down here at Hinkley Point in Somerset. Um, trouble is, we will need 30 Hinkley Points, 600 billion. And does anyone think we can build 30 nuclear power stations by 2035 or 2050? It's not going to happen, is it? Um, good thing about um, nuclear power is it's uh, reliable, so we don't need the backup. But we do need fuel, and the fuel comes in at 220 billion over a 50-year lifespan. So we're talking about 820 billion. The other problem with this is we're supposed to have a green revolution from this. We're supposed to have a green economy. Uh, are we? Because if you look at Hornsey 3, it's being built by a Danish company using Swedish turbines, using uh, German gearboxes and generators, and Japanese cables. Where is the benefit for Britain in that? Uh, solar in the Sahara, you can bet they're going to be built in China, aren't you? Um, and the cables will be built in Germany and Japan. 
And nuclear power, well, it's being built by the Chinese and the French. EDF in France is building it. Okay, so in summary, what have we learned? Uh, CO2 is the most essential gas in the atmosphere. Without CO2, all life on Earth will die. Uh, CO2 is not a very powerful greenhouse gas. Peter Taylor's going to talk about this, uh, but basically the models have exaggerated the effects of CO2. Um, climate change is not as bad as advertised. We've seen that the tornadoes and the hurricanes are reducing. Most renewable energy needs stored backup, and the government is not even looking at stored backup yet. Mandating electric vehicles and electric heating without the generating capacity to underpin it is an absolute folly. Um, however, alternative, en sorry, alternative energy supplies are required because we will run out of fossil fuels at some point. I don't know if you know, but we reached peak coal in 19, uh, yeah, 1913. We reached peak gas and peak oil in 1999. We in this country are running out of fossil fuels, uh, fracking aside. Um, so we do need alternative supplies over the next 100 years, 200 years. Um, I suggest that we need 60% nuclear power. The French have 80% and they're doing quite well and their energy costs for electricity are nearly half of ours at present. So I think we ought to follow the, the, the French example. I don't think I've ever said that before. But I think in this case, we should follow the French example. The trouble is that uranium is a limited resource because the fast breeder reactor um, program has failed. Now, I've seen quotes that we have only got 200 years, 250 years of easily available uranium before we start running out of uranium-235, <clears throat> if everybody in the world goes to uh, nuclear power. So that's a bit of a problem. The alternative is thorium. Here he is. Uh, thorium power. Now, thorium power works. The Americans made a thorium reactor back in the 60s. It works, and it has some advantages. We've got plenty of uh, thorium around. I've seen quotes of 10 million years of thorium. We've got 200 years of thorium sitting in waste dumps at present because it's a waste product. Um, you don't get the long-life uh, waste products, so none of this 20, 30,000-year waste products. All of the waste products are 200-year, 300-year waste products and you can't make nuclear weapons from thorium. So it has lots of advantages. The problem, the problem is there is no investment from the government. I don't think they even know what thorium power is, let alone the benefits it can, it can give us. And finally, the government is not serious about keeping the lights on and maintaining our wealth and prosperity. So that is the end of my talk, and the takeaway I hope from this one is don't panic. The world is not going to end in five years like an uneducated teenager told us, and the world is not going to end in 12 years like an uneducated member of Congress told us. So let's take our time about this. Let's formulate a reasonable and rational policy for our energy future. Thank you.